Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 104th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is uh, very connective end-to-end experience. I'm joined by Mark L. Surauer. He is the co-author of The Synergy Solution, How Companies Win the Mergers and Acquisitions Game. The publisher is Harvard Business Review Press. Mark is a leader in Deloitte's M&A and restructuring practice and was previously a global M&A leader in the Boston Consulting Group. He teaches M&A at the NYU Stern School of Business and has also authored The Synergy Trap. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks very much, Dan. Nice to be here. Thank you. So uh, let's go ahead and start with just a brief overview of the book. Give us a sense of what it's about. Thanks, Dan. So I think you started out uh, with your introductory words. The the biggest takeaway is that um, M&A is very much an intimately connected end-to-end experience. And these these topics that are often talked about, like, you know, you need to have a strategy and you need to manage the cultures right and, um, you know, don't overpay, uh, you know, n- not that anyone intentionally overpays. These are all, you know, strategy, culture and change and valuations are are obviously important topics, but um, they're, they're very connected. And we try to make that point right from the very beginning. And one of the things that's very important to us, and it it is uh, it's a theme that runs through the book, is that capital is luxurious. It's expensive to touch. Uh, there are good things to do with capital, smart things to do with capital, and less smart things um, to do with capital. 
Uh, and so that leads you to that really M&A obviously is about growth, or but more than growth, it's about choices right from the beginning, because capital implies promises that you're going to have to deliver on. Okay. And speaking of choices, um, there's the first choice of whether not to even move forward. And, uh, you know, I, I am impressed by the book's desire to be honest about the difficulty of pulling this off well, uh, because right away you mentioned that, no, not all of these work out. In fact, the percentages is, I think it was, what, 56% of them are not particularly successful, although that's better than it used to be. And one of the things you, you quote uh, Warren Buffett, actually way up front in the book, you say, only in fairy tales are emperors told that they are naked. So from your experience over all of these years with it, how much does CEO hubris have to be an element you, you navigate here in, in making these successful? Well, hubris is always one of those topics that journalists uh, love to talk about. And we'll, we'll get to the percentages and the success and failure and, and the results of the study here in a moment. Um, but, uh, you know, it, when, a, uh, when a CEO does something uh, wrong, it's, it's, it's often, well, it's the, um, you know, hubris lies at the fault. On the other hand, if they do something courageous, uh, then it's hubris <laughs> that leads, leads to the courageous things as well. Um, sure. So, you know, I, I, I think rather than talk about whether it's hubris or not, and there is a hubris hypothesis in finance uh, from Richard Roll, very famous paper, and it's basically about overestimation biases in, in um, common value auctions. But M&A is a, is a private value auction. I mean, it's, it's worth different amounts to different people, depending on what their different acquirers, depending on what they would do with those assets. So, you know, I think the, um, uh, the risk of overpaying is, I would say, less about hubris and not doing all the things you need to do to inform your valuations. And, okay. And I can talk more about the study a bit, if you like. Yeah, no, by all means, go ahead. So, uh, yeah, so uh, success and fa- success and failure in M&A is uh, obviously what people have been talking about for at least four decades, actually more than that. I've lived through four merger waves. Um, and uh, even in the bad old days of the, um, the 80s and 90s, when I first started doing studies, um, the worst we were at was a 65-35 split 65 negative 35 positive and uh and yet there are still articles that get written that say that start out with you know all studies show that 70 to 90 percent of deals fail and uh uh, i i I just don't think that's the case um what we found is at announcement uh about 60 percent of deals are met with negative reactions market reactions and reactions are essentially a forecast by investors of how they think the deal will turn out, but that means that forty percent are met with positive reactions. You cited the the percentage fifty six percent. That's when we go out uh, when we go out a year and industry yeah. adjust the returns. It's about fifty six percent. But for us, you know, does it uh, does it really matter if it's fifty fifty or fifty five forty five or sixty forty? Uh, the we go beyond that and we start we de average. The results, and so for us, it's do, do market reactions matter? And now I've done these studies before. I had a cover story in Business Week magazine back in two thousand and two about the about the nineties deals, and um, but I haven't done this 
this kind of study over over this long a period of time, 24 years. And so what we did to test whether marker reactions matter, because there are still some observers that say marker reactions don't matter. You know, you can't do a, a big deal with a, without taking a hit to the share price. Well, we, we took those, um, we took all the deals, we broke them into a positive reaction portfolio and a negative reaction portfolio on announcement. And we tracked them out over a year. And the uh, positive reaction portfolio remains strongly positive a year out, and the negative portfolio uh, remains strongly negative a year out. So market reactions really matter. But we went further, and this is where I think the, what the real story is. If you look at the deals that start positive and stay positive, those deals do really well, uh, peer adjusted, you know, compared to their peers. The, the companies that start out negative and stay negative aren't able to turn that around. And that's about two thirds of all companies that start with negative reactions uh, don't turn it around. And for stock deals, it's closer to 75%. Um, uh, they do really badly, you know, industry adjusted. And so when you look at, and, and this is a big point we make early on in the book, uh, we, we call this the persistent spread, the spread between companies that start positive and stay positive versus companies that start negative and stay negative is 60 percentage points not just 60% difference, 60 percentage points difference. And that's the real story. Um, and you, and our point uh, of making that, uh, or our intent of making that point is that most companies would rather start with a positive marker reaction than a negative one. And that just opens up the book because that, that goes to how important announcement day is. Yeah, no, which I liked a lot. And, and the whole point of this episode, that it's a connective experience. Emotions are have momentum to them. They're contagious. Uh, you mentioned that uh, employees can be investors as well, obviously. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, um, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense to me that uh, it can be difficult to turn around the ship if you don't handle the announcement itself uh, properly. Uh, in fact, I, I've worked in executive communications for a Fortune 200 company and for a major firm in the computer distributing business. I have to tell you, in both those cases, the executives were excellent, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't call them people persons, and I wouldn't say they uh, their forte was communication. So what's your experience working with uh, executives getting ready for that announcement day? Well, so um, it's a great question, and I'm going to open up the answer a little bit. Um, okay. Because uh, let's think about the functions that announcement day serves and... Uh, then let's go back and think about how different M&A is. And it's not something uh, that where announcement day is just a communications exercise. So we, we treated in the Synergy Solution that announcement day serves three very important functions. First of all, preparing for it is your last stop in diligence. You know, essentially the board has to ask the fundamental question, how is this deal going to affect our share price and why? So number one is preparing for announcement day. That is all the work you do before you get there um, is, uh, is, is vital and, 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 and preparing for announcement day is the last stop in diligence. The second one is everything you say, uh, your press release, uh, your investor presentation, your conference calls, uh, any road shows you do to support the deal um, after announcement, uh, that's all fodder for other stakeholders' diligence, suppliers, customers, employees, for sure, regulators. Um, so that's another function of announcement day. And the third, and it's just as important, is that culture starts 
on announcement day, the things we talk about, about culture and change and how work gets done and values and beliefs and expectations, all that starts on announcement day. Uh, employees are listening to everything you say because uh, in essence, you've bumped them down their hierarchy of needs. You know, they're going around minding their own business, focused on their careers and career paths and their families. And all of a sudden, uh, you've, you've sort of bumped them down from self-actualization down to safety needs. Do I have a job? Yes. Are my benefits going to change? Am I going to have to move? Are my technology platforms that I've grown to know and love so well, are they going to change? You know, um, all sorts of things. So, uh, you know, announcement day is more than just a communications exercise. And so if it's okay, let, let's talk about why M&A is so different and why this, uh, this can't start just a couple of weeks before announcement. Is that okay? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm totally in favor of this. I can tell you that one of my experiences with the guy in the computer company is that uh, they made a major acquisition. I begged him to try to prepare for this and to, uh, you know, guide the culture and the conversation. And all I could get from the guy was uh, he agreed to take a five minute face to face meeting with a select number of employees. And that was it. And then he wanted to go back to his office. Ah. So it was, uh, well, to my lot. mind, a minor disaster. It's a lot more than that. Um, of course, but so, yeah. So, so certainly, let's let's delve into it. Go go right ahead. Go, take it as broadly as you want to. Yeah. So, I think it's important um, to remind executives or potential acquirers um, just how different M and A is from other capital investment decisions. First of all, you 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 pay it all up front, you know, before you get a chance to touch the wheel. So, there's no uh, diverting the funding. I'm talking if you're talking about a publicly traded company. There's no diverting the the funding, there's no um, stopping the funding, you've paid it. So yeah. the only price that's going to fluctuate is yours, the acquirer. You know, you've, you've fixed the price of the target. Um, and, uh, and we'll get, uh, hopefully we'll get to merger waves and why that, why this is so important right now. Uh, the other thing that's unique is when you pay a premium, because most acquisitions involve a premium, and that could be 20, 30, 40, 50%. You're creating a brand new business performance problem that didn't exist before. Not only did it not exist before, no one expected it. Otherwise, the target would have been trading at those levels. And you know, you also have to be careful in these kind of environments, the kind of environment we're living in now, is that some of these targets aren't already trading as a takeover candidate because that means they have a lot of growth value already built into the standalone value. And you're paying a premium on top of that. That's pretty unique. And uh, uh, and that's a big theme of the book. And the the other thing uh, is that once you do the integration that's so essential to making a deal work, you've jacked up the exit cost. It's very expensive to, you know, once you've closed a world headquarters or consolidated systems, it's very expensive to unwind mistakes. And so you can start to see again how connected that idea, those ideas are to the importance of announcement. Day. There's a lot of work to do before you get there. Okay. And you, you alluded to merger waves. So at risk of uh, not uh, getting there later on, tell me what you want to offer. Yeah. So, so this is, this is very important. And um, you know, we, we, uh, Jeff and I wrote the book to be timeless. Um, that was something we agreed in the beginning. Uh, I wrote my first book 25 years ago, this, the Synergy Trap, and that's still, it's still in print. And uh, you know, we wanted the same sort of thing for the, for the Synergy uh, solution. If, if you go back to, say, 2016 and you look at the M&A activity uh, over the last five years, uh, it's been uh, 
this, this period of time is just extraordinary. A, a, an economist uh, thinks of merger waves as concentrations of activity. So by an economist measure, uh, we're certainly living through a merger wave. For strategists, what we look at is, is there a wave shape? And what we saw in 2021 uh, was, was striking. Uh, the number of large deals doubled, that is deals over a billion, uh, doubled in 2021. And um, uh, also, the, just the total value of transactions was up 60%. The volume of transactions was up 26%. And so whenever you start to see that sort of wave shape, and I'm not a soothsayer, so you know where are we in the wave, I can't say, but when we start to sure. see that wave shape, you only get a wave shape uh, in deals if one of two things are happening. Number one, uh, companies start to do things, or companies that hadn't been doing deals start doing them. Or companies that uh, had been doing uh, lots of deals start doing more or larger ones. That's the only way you get a wave shape. And so when you think about it, uh, when you're talking about a merger wave, you're, there's this injection of inexperience in the market, whether it's companies that hadn't been acquisitive that now are, or companies that had a certain business model for acquisition start to deviate from that and do larger deals. Um, there's an injection of inexperience and at all-time high market valuations. So we're paying premiums on near all-time or all-time high market valuations on these very unique high-risk uh, decisions. And is COVID driving this in part? I mean, what, what might be the factors for this wave? Well, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, have to, I have to say I don't know. You know, when we, when, uh, we first saw the, the, the COVID shutdown, I think we were all as, as um, Deloitte partners worried, oh my gosh, you know, what's this going to do to M&A? And uh, one of the things we know about uh, M&A uh, and M&A activity is that they're highly correlated, correlated with rising stock markets. So obviously there, there was a setback there temporarily, but once the market came back and nearly doubled, um, M&A came, came back right along with it. Yeah. So your, your question on COVID is a, it, it's, it's a good one. Um, and I, I, you know, as Deloitte partners, uh, we were all very worried, uh, M&A partners, uh, what, uh, what the, what the shutdowns and the lockdowns were, were going to do for, um, for the business. And, uh, cause one of the things we do know is that, uh, M&A activity is highly cor- correlated with rising stock markets. And so when the market came way down, you can imagine that any deal that was on the table was just frozen, um, but it came back and you know, nearly doubled. And so, you know, along with the rising markets, uh, you know, M&A activity came, came roaring right back. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the market certainly performed in ways a lot of us didn't expect when, when COVID initially hit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't even think until I was reading your book about and what your comments were just now that uh, uh, when it came roaring back, it also helped out the M&A. Well, sure. And I, I, imagine if you were a company, what we call prepared acquire, that is companies that know what they want and why and how they're going to create value. So they have active watch lists of deals. Um, they took advantage of that decline in market valuations, at least at least temporarily. OK, Yeah chance to see what's out there and see if they could get a better better deal. Yeah. Maybe that premium's a bit lower. I wanted to move over to the employee side of things. Um, several times in the book, you made reference to uh, in moving through this uh, end-to-end experience, 
from the employee perspective, it's it's getting out ahead of the pain, trying to keep some calm going for them. Um, so, I mean, it is it is very emotional. I was never through an M&A in my time in corporate America, uh, but I was through several reorgs, which are at least close. And it was just kind of like a tsunami had struck. Um, tremendous emotional <laughs> uh, anxiety going on. How, I mean, for those who, who don't yet know the book, uh, hopefully they'll buy a copy. <laughs> Give a little bit of guidance as to how one does indeed get ahead of the pain. What's what's important for the integration team to, to bear in mind here. Sure. So let me try to give this to you in a connected way because it's, it's very, uh, um, it's very easy to talk about uh, the employee experience and isolation, but let's talk about the employee employee experience since you asked about it. Um, there are, um, we talk about three things, uh, in the book that are part of employee experience planning. And, uh, that should start right after announcement. I mean, the actual planning, the employee experience should start immediately following announcement, as should the setting up of the integration management office with the steering committee, picking the right leaders to drive the IMO, the integration management office, the, the work streams that, that sit underneath it, all the things that you would typically expect, like finance, uh, accounting, HR, marketing, um, you know, facility, real estate, that sort of thing. But there are four, we, we, we talk about four fundamental cross-functional work streams. Uh, one is um, org- organization design. Uh, one is synergy planning. Uh, one is day one readiness. And the other one, just to highlight its importance, is the employee experience. It's communications and the employee experience. And what we try to do in uh, employee experience planning, as you, su- as you suggested, and we say in the book, uh, uh, getting ahead of the pain is number one is anticipating the major changes that will come uh, for different employee groups. So number one is anticipate the change. The second is then what is the organization going to do to support employees through those changes? And it could be, you know, uh, if they're minor sort of procedural things, they could be kiosks um, and, and ways for them to get that training in the normal course of their day, or they may require leadership visits if they're, if it's more fundamental change, like on go-to-market strategy and, and, and that sort of thing. And then finally, it's are they are our employees prepared? Are they ready for those changes? And so those are things that you know we'll check with readiness checks um, and that sort of thing before uh, before close and after close, uh, particularly for things that are going to take more time um, to, to to execute. And um, so that's the way we we approach the employee experience. But think about how would you be ready to do that? If you haven't done the proper diligence and pre-integration planning, even before announcement. So um, uh, often uh, diligence is is, um, described as something you do to to reach a go or no-go decision, but it's way more than that. And we think of in in diligence, you're either testing assumptions that someone has put in a valuation model or you're driving the inputs to your valuation model. around where you think you can have cost reductions or revenue enhancements. But the other big part of diligence is building that early integration roadmap is how are you going to put numbers into a model if you haven't thought through what's going to change? Um, you know, there are the, the, there are the easier, closer in things like procurement savings or um, maybe facility duplication. And you have the, the uh, issues that are going to take a lot longer, like uh, merging or consolidating two different ERP systems. Um, which could take 12 to 18 months. And so 
it's in the diligence process that you should be building that early integration roadmap so you understand where the major changes are going to be. Some things are going to take longer than others. Uh, some things are going to be more expensive to execute than others. And so it's very important that we think about diligence as early integration planning, because how else would you be prepared a following announcement uh, to talk about employee issues? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Uh, to me, you know, diligence is going to be persistent throughout the process. You got to deal with the vagaries of human nature. I mean, you acknowledge in the book that, you know, some people are going to try to uh, shortchange the changes intended. Some will sit on their hands. Some are going to run away. You know, you have to try to retain talent. That's right. I mean, there's just so many, <laughs> so many pieces here. If you don't pay attention, it's um, could all blow up in your hands. Speaking, speaking of which, um, you know, one of the things is, uh, you know, the transfer of knowledge. I mean, not everyone's going to stay. Mm -hmm. um, how, how do you, what's, what's best practices there to ensure that what you need, what the value you had in the deal stays, stays uh, evident? Right. So um, you're talking about a couple of issues. One is retention itself. So it's, yes. it's very yes. important that you understand who the best people are and the best customers um, so that, because, you know, when, when a deal gets announced, uh, you know, I've done post-merger integration work where a competitor held a job fair at the local airport and, um, uh, and customers, uh, I, I won't mention the name of the, the, the company, but they used to call it the competitor parade. They go after your best customers and tell them, oh, we can give you better deals. Uh, it's going to be a mess over there while they try to figure out how to integrate. They're going to take their eye off the eye off the ball. So, um, so retention is, is a huge issue, um, right from the beginning, but you also highlighted knowledge transfer. And we think of that as part of um, uh, workforce transition. It's part of talent selection and workforce transition. So as you're choosing your talent throughout the organization, you have to make sure that, and if and certain people are exiting, that um, that knowledge gets retained. And that can be, you know, it, it, it can be everything from conversations or interviews um, with those folks, um, but, uh, there, there has to be a process, and we, we talk about that in the book, about the knowledge transfer and making sure those conversations happen. And, and uh, Yeah, well, one of the things I liked in the book was, um, you know, this number of case studies, uh, in essence, including Echolab. Yeah. Um, and, and there you mentioned uh, that the employee experience team figured out who some of the influential employees were, kind of the, you know, people who maybe didn't have the title, but uh, had a real sense of what was going on in the culture and you wanted to bring them with you. Yes. I think they're even called culture, culture partners. partners. Culture partners. Yeah. Exactly. I, I just, I thought that was great. I, I think that's too often what's, what's missed is realizing you're going to have to deal with human nature and all this. And you need to find what those, what those levers are. We've got a few more minutes. I wanted to open it up to uh, maybe a, a point or two that you wanted to make sure you could get across to listeners regarding the book, things that were important. Yeah, I, and I, I would go back to merger waves and why this is so important right right now. So I mentioned when we talked about merger waves that uh, when you start to see that wave shape, companies are doing things they hadn't been doing before and that there's this injection of inexperience. And it's it's at it, it, these uh, this sort of point of uh, increasing M&A activity that companies start to get reactive and the prepared companies are, um, are in great shape because they know what they want and why. Um, but, you know, uh, most companies are living in an environment now where deals are just swirling around them 
Bankers are coming to them with deals. Their competitors are doing deals. The amount of private equity, the value of private equity transactions tripled since 2016. So they're now facing private equity competitors that they weren't facing before. And, you know, I often quip, um, you know, no, no one wants to have someone at Fortune magazine do a story that said the world was changing and Charlie just sat there. So um, it's very important around uh, in these sort of times that uh, companies take that step back and determine what they want as opposed to being reactive to deals that are being brought to them. And that's kind of the kiss of death uh, in M&A is being, a, being prepared versus being a reactor. Because reactors trap themselves in a constant game of playing not to lose. They'll just do diligence and more diligence. And uh, you know, once you start negotiating on a deal, time is not on your side. Things move very, very quickly. The, the, uh, the period of time you have time is before you start um, approaching sellers or, 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 or you get approached. And it really is that, that time where you have to make choices about what's most important to your business. Either you're going to uh, exploit capabilities you have, enter new markets, uh, develop better product offerings, uh, or you're looking for capabilities uh, in the market that you don't have that you think are important for your business. But, you know, and not all businesses can be equally important. Um, it really is about setting priorities, about the most important pathways for growth, and also informing yourself about the universe of opportunities that sit along those pathways. Because we often find when we do an M&A strategy exercise, within just a couple of weeks, CEOs or heads of the business we're working with, they'll say, you know, I knew there were a lot of companies out there, or, you know, we talked to that company before, but they don't necessarily realize just how many players there are, emerging players that may be coming into the market. Um, and uh, so when a deal is brought to you, you have a framework uh, to uh, uh, for yourself for why a deal may or may not be important. Um, speaking of, of headlines, before we leave, since we're talking about waves and, and the world changing, uh, I've been seeing some commentary suggesting that given the sanctions involving Russia, uh, because of the Ukraine conflict, or really it's a war, um, that we might be looking at deglobalization to some extent. Uh, do you think that's at all true? And if it is true, uh, what might be the impact on mergers and acquisitions? I assume this game's gotten more complicated as, as the economy's gotten so global over the last 40 years. Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a great point. Uh, so M&A is now a very global business. If you went back to the 80s and 90s, uh, it was very much U.S. targets that that dominated yeah, yeah. Uh, volume and value of transactions. But now, if you look at just say uh, 2021, uh, roughly half of the value came from U.S. targets. So it is very much a global business. But my direct answer to your question is, I I can't really talk about deglobalization, but I can talk about what M and A markets don't like, and that is market volatility. So. Uh, uh, M&A markets don't like volatility because it messes with deals that are on the table. You know, sellers, sure. sellers want, you know, they, they're anchored on their 52 week high and buyers are anchored on what their value was. And so if, you know, when, when, uh, when, uh, when values come down, just think of what that does to deals that were being negotiated. It's yeah. So <laughs> a lot of chance to get out the pencil and rework the numbers. So uh, I want to thank you, Mark, so much for your, your time today. This has been episode 104, Why Connective, uh, Very Connective End-to-End Experience Regarding M&A. My guest, Mark Zeroer, he is the co-author of The Synergy Solution, How Companies Win the Mergers and Acquisitions Game, the publisher's Harvard Business Review Press. 
If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to the New Books Network, typing in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, and the 100-plus episodes will appear. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took something a bit lighter from a guy named Francis McKinney Hubbard, who said, the safest way to double your money is to fold it over once and put it in your pocket. Until next time, take care and be well. Thank you, Mark. Thanks very much, Dan. Thank you.